Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley. Quickly, before we get into the show, I wanted to mention two things. First, Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, an independent digital media company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. If you want to learn more about all of the shows that Cardboard Box Productions produces, Poetry Spoken Here included, you can head to the website cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. You can also sign up for the Cardboard Box Productions newsletter, Unboxed, which has more information about the guests and topics covered on Poetry Spoken Here, as well as all the other shows that Cardboard Box Productions creates. The second thing I wanted to talk about is a topic that comes up in this episode, the controversy around Amiri Baraka's poem, Somebody Blew Up America. Baraka's poem, which is about the terrorist attacks of 9-11, was accused at the time it came out of being anti-Semitic and led to his removal as the Poet Laureate of New Jersey. Now, I encourage all of you to listen to the poem, read the poem, read analyses of the poem, and look at what Baraka himself has said about it and decide where you come down on that controversy. Uh, Charlie and Roberto discuss the controversy and reference some parts of the poem, but not the specific line that is most often cited. So in a long list of questions that Baraka asks in the poem, this is one of them. Who knew the World Trade Center was going to get bombed? Who told 4,000 Israeli workers at the Twin Towers to stay away that day? Why did Sharon stay away? For many readers at the time, this had uncomfortable resonances with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about 9-11 that were already circulating. Some of them have made their way into the present. They've lived on. What also cannot be discounted is how this one line was used to delegitimize the poem's many legitimate questions about American imperialism. So if you want to learn more about Baraka's poem, I mean, listen to this episode, you have a great conversation about it. But if you're also interested in more context about how poetry responded to 9-11, you can check out a mini-series from our sister podcast, Close Talking. My friend Connor and I discuss how poetry responded initially to the attacks and also how it has responded to the resulting war on terror and surveillance state. So those three episodes are episodes 107, 108, and 109 of Close Talking. So with all of that, on with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Roberto Garcia. He is a poet, storyteller, essayist. His work focuses on Latinx and Afro-diasporic experiences. He's got a wonderful heritage as a lifelong New Yorker. That is to say, his background includes being around people from the New York Rican Cafe, Harlem Renaissance Black Arts kind of writers. And uh, I will mention that his new book he'll be reading from has a blurb by Patricia Smith. And that's a big plus. His poetry has been published many places. Poetry Magazine, uh, the Academy of American Poets Poem a Day, and lots of other places. He's the founder of the cooperative press, Get Fresh Books. And his new book is called Elegies. It's from Flower Song Press and just released. So uh, we're going to be real happy to talk. I'm real happy to talk to him. I spent a couple of wonderful hours yesterday reading the book. So Roberto, welcome to Poetry Spoken Here. Thank you for having me, Charlie. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, what 
what would you say about your your poetic focus? I threw out a couple of phrases, but yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, that that blurb, I, I did a reading, uh, Kaveh Kanem, the home for Black poetry, a wonderful organization. Mm -hmm. um, during, uh, I think maybe it was uh, Latinx History Month, they were having an Afro-Latinx poet reading. And uh, they, they pulled, they wrote that little excerpt, you know what I mean? And I said, I want it, can I steal <laughs> that? You know, <laughs> I said, absolutely, go for it, right? Um, I've always, I guess the, I've been drawn to the beauty because I'm a Spanish speaker, I recognize that there's a certain, there's a certain beauty in, in words that you say in Spanish that just don't exist in English. And what you try, I think one of the things I, I try to do with language is to get the beauty of those romance languages, right? Into the English somehow, right? Whether that's with imagery or, um, so, uh, for me, simplicity is best, right? Um, but there's also this aspect of, you know, my Afro-descendancy, uh, my connection to that experience of colonial slavery that complicates that relationship. And so um, the poets of the Black Arts Movement, the poets of the Harlem Renaissance, the poets of the New Yorican, um, they get at that for me, right? They get at that, um, you know, for the community, for the culture. And so this transfusion or this infusion, excuse me, I should say, um, I think is what uh, lives in my work and, you know, makes me an American poet, right? <laughs> because Absolutely. Yeah. So, much of, uh, so much of America operates like that. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, as I, you got a, you got a heritage from a, a bunch of poets I've certainly admired for years, I got to say. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you, you've started this press. What is that? The, the Get Fresh. I basically, the, the motivation for Get Fresh books uh, came about from, I guess, wanting to see more of the books I, I wanted to read. Right. Um, and also to create a, just an opportunity, an alternative for poets whom, you know, for whatever reason, don't kind of fall neatly into the categories of poetry today, you know? Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, you know, I know a lot of wonderful poets who just don't happen to be between the ages of 25 and 35, which is the sweet spot for a lot of contests and awards and prizes and publishing, right? I know a lot of poets who have families and full-time jobs, and that doesn't make it so easy to, you know, be out and about at all of the events and meeting people, you know? So, yep. um, and also there's a tremendous dearth of, it may seem like in this moment, there's so much, so many books and so much writing coming out from communities of color, but it's still just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of uh, the writers and the talent that's actually out there, right? the industry is still predominantly heterosexual white males and um, there just needs to be more equity. So I just want it to be another alternative, right? For folks who can't seem to crack that, that ceiling um, and to be a safe home 
for those underrepresented communities yeah. that will be free of any kind of exploitative aspects, you know? But when did you start it? How long has it been going on? Oh, I think it's like four years now. Right. I think, yeah, 2016, I think. And we're still yeah. still going strong. <laughs> well, well, the thing you're saying remind me of Mata Booty with Third World Press. Yes. I would say yeah. your, your motivation probably matches him about 99 and a half percent, you know, well, if not 100, you know. Third World Press is a huge inspiration, um, you know, as are you know, many others. I know that, uh, you know, Amiri Baraka started a small press, too, in his day. And the Beats, they all were starting like a, a press here or a press there. So um, all of those folks and their uh, example, right? Um, yeah. Even even before them, right? Like I, I, I think about Edgar Allan Poe and I think about Melville. And I think about those cats and they all kind of self-published books that are classics now that you just would not, you know what I mean? That you're going right. to read somewhere along the line in your education and nobody would publish those guys it's crazy they had to like take the bull by the horns and publish you know their own stuff or, or a friend started a yeah. press just to publish their books you know so there's a tradition i think uh in the arts of doing this um and so i'm trying to keep that tradition alive but then also at the same time again provide community um, you know, for those poets uh, who def who need it, right? For those poets yeah. who need it and yeah. want it. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into elegies a bit here. Sure. We'll come back to these things too. <laughs> Just okay. pick a poem and let us have it. Um, okay, uh, I think I'll I'll begin with a, a poem you made mention of, and because it's been a uh, Tito actually passed young man uh, whom I wrote an elegy for, his name is Tito Caballero. Uh, he actually passed uh, last year <clears throat> around this time, uh, December 13th or 14th. And so uh, we've been, not last year, a few years ago, we've been commemorating uh, his passing of student friends and, and some of his faculty. So uh, I'll read elegy for Tito. Elegy for Tito. There was no nightmare, only the shakes, chills, and cold sweat, a teasing pain in my kidneys. Extra blankets weren't enough, neither socks nor sweaters. I rose from bed in the morning, terrified of death and dying and of being missed by my children. I drove to work in self-absorbed dread, and I saw you in the parking lot. You called out, Professor, in a Spanish that praises, loves, and admires all at once. We walked through the door together and I made small talk, a crime really. The words wafted up like lit ash then blinked out. You passed through another door and I watched you on that other path and wondered why would he go that way? Your body and the curls on your head shrinking and I imagined you walking to the library but my own life rushed in a wave urging me to keep swimming, to breathe. And I forgot you and my macabre mood and then died in the bathroom. How many ways can a death be foretold and why don't we listen when voices whisper from the opaque lands that terrify and wait beyond the silken veil? 
Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Tito, you might not believe I believe this, but you are flying across all the starry nights. Well, as I said when we were talking before we came on, uh, you know, that's like an intense spiritual experience. Getting that premonition like that just took my breath away when I read it. I got to say, it really did. Thank you. Let's move right on to another poem. Then we'll go back to chatting about things. Praise poem, Nazim Hikmet, after Jan Heller Levy. The poet Jan Heller Levy had a series of praise poems for different people and different things. And they were just wonderful poems, short poems. Um, and so loving Hikmet's work, like I do, uh, I wrote one for him, praise poem, Nassim Hikmet, after Jan Heller Levy. For your olive trees, your bullets and tanks and prison bars, the letters, the long and heartbreaking letters, for your many deaths on paper and for your elegies mourning each one, for your friends, for Mustafa, for the strangest creature on earth, for your pot of honey and for your wife, ever absent, ever present, for your hymns and your exile, one holding space for the other, and for your honey pot, red as fire, and for your bees. So one of the things that uh, I have a neighbor who, um, they like to read poetry, so I gave him a copy of the book. And um, there's a poem in the book, Note to A.B., A Boogeyman for Amiri Baraka. Uh, and as it turns out, her father is a jazz musician who was close friends with Amiri Baraka. And, uh, you know, she basically, I guess, grew up, you know, listening to the two of them go back and forth about jazz and poetry. And oh, she, wow. she brought me a CD of their recordings together uh, recently. So it was just a, a wonderful coincidence, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'll read this poem um, in honor of Amiri Baraka. Note to A.B., a boogeyman for Amiri Baraka. Everybody digs a boogeyman, baby. The people need a monster to fear, to pull the blanket over their eyes and hide from. Boogeyman hand poking out from dark neoliberal closets. Everybody digs a boogeyman, baby. Who they want to hate you, why they want you hated, how they want you hated, what you do to be hated. Get down, boogie, oogie, oogie. High truth and a couple buildings collapse. Government will say boogeyman did that. Tell truth in a poem when a couple buildings collapse. Governor will call you a boogeyman for that. Everybody digs a boogeyman, baby. I am, I am the most beautiful boogeyman. From what I know of various poet laureates, you know, national and state level, that was to me the biggest controversy. Uh, that I'm aware of. Yeah. When you yeah. Read that 911 poem and people weren't ready uh, for it. And I think that says a lot about right. the political moment where um, where more questions needed to be asked. That was a that was a a time to question. You know, it's funny, I have I had a student in my composition class and uh, her mom was in the building and got out 
just minutes before it collapsed. Um, and she decided she would write about that. And we listened to this poem. And um, she said, you know, in the moment, um, once she was old enough to, to, cogn to be cognizant of what had happened, uh, she, wanted, she was questioning like, what, how could something like this happen? Why could it happen? And she said, everyone around her was just saying, you know, hey, just be grateful, your mom made it, just be grateful, you know? Nobody wanted to ask those questions. And I, I think it took a tremendous amount of courage on his part to ask those questions in that poem in a moment where everyone became absorbed with something else. Do me a favor. Sure. I vaguely remember, but I'm sure you know it better. Just tell everybody a little bit the highlights of what that was. This is all about, like so, what uh, he said essentially in the poem. Sure, in the poem, um, people were saying that, that the poem was insensitive one to the victims, but more than that, people were saying that the poem was anti-Semitic, that it was uh, anti-Jewish, right? And so, um, because he made some references to Israelis laughing on the sidelines. Um, and that's related to the fact that the United States was given intelligence that there was a threat and that it was a very credible threat and all the details about how it would happen was passed on to the government. And so in the poem, he also insinuates that the government knew, the American government had knowledge of this. Um, and allowed it to happen. But the most important line, I think, of the poem is when he says, all thinking people oppose terrorism. Oppose terrorism, both domestic and international. But one should not be used to cover the other. Somebody blew up America. They say it's some terrorist, some barbaric Arab in Afghanistan. Right, all thinking people oppose terrorism, but one cannot be used to cover up the other. And so he gives this long history in the poem of acts of terrorism uh, that America has committed against other countries. It wasn't the gonorrhea in costume, the white sheet diseases that have murdered black people, terrorized reason and sanity, most of humanity as they pleases. They say, who say, who do the saying? Who is them paying? Who tell the lies? Who in disguise? Who had the slaves? Who got the bucks out the bucks? Who got fat from plantations? Who genocided Indians? Tried to waste the black nation? You know, what goes out comes back, I guess, basically. Yeah. Right, to simplify it. Um, and so, of course, nobody wants to hear that. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the reason why these men attacked us uh, isn't just because they hate freedom as what, you know, was espoused largely back then. Um, these are retaliatory strikes. What we do in other countries comes back to us. Right. And so what we need to do is question our government and say, hey, what are you doing out there yeah. that is causing this to come back? Right. Um, and again, this is not to justify any of terrorism is terrible. Those folks died for no good reason on that day. There were people who didn't, they did not deserve to die. 
right? And those men uh, had, a, I believe that had our government done its due diligence, those men would have been apprehended and none of those people would have had to die because they, they died for nothing and that's terrible. Um, and so not only do we need to mourn the dead, obviously, but we also need to ensure that we hold our government accountable to what yeah. they're doing on foreign soil. Okay, so that- one more, one more quick little thing yeah. then. Do you remember the title of the poem in case somebody wants to go and find it? Yes, Somebody Blew Up America. There you go, Somebody Blew Up America. And that was the Amiri refrain Baraka. by Amiri Baraka, and that was the refrain, yes, correct. Yeah. I did hear him read it at the Dodge Festival before he uh, stopped being Poet Laureate, I think it was. Yes, so it was really, really a powerful poem, people, if you want to go find that. Yeah, I was, oh. I was there, yes. Okay, let's get back to your work and hear another elegy. Sure. Um, so in the center of the book, there are about 20 elegies dedicated to my grandmother uh, who raised me and um, died of Alzheimer's. Um, and mm. she, thankfully, uh, she the last about 10 to 12 years of her life with Alzheimer's, she was so well cared for. The doctors said, you know, physically she's fine it's just the alzheimer's guys you know she said and and people with alzheimer's don't usually live this long you guys are doing a great job taking care of her and you know my aunt judy her youngest daughter you know took charge and cared for her beautifully um and so her final years she was surrounded by family and love um this poem is called elegy in which i consider the resurrection Scholars say the Bible is written in parables, that it uses symbolic language to explain life, choices measured against infinity, clouds of dust struggling up the mountain, three days to return, to leave again in a blink, time enough to inspire the faithful, to spread the gospel, give hope. Mommy, you died over a month ago, so I'm calculating. We all are, three days, years, Decades or cycles of the moon, or as the crow flies, the horse rides, the wind affects the tides. Our grief is a house of mirrors. What would you say if you rose pristine from the ashes and saw us in our silos, each one believing their grief to be the alpha and omega? Mommy, I think I understand why resurrection is brief. No need to stick around and see the same stuff again. Mm. grandmothers are, are so important you know i know jimmy baga has a really good poem about his grandmother and a number of other poets do and i know with my own personal experience my grandmother yeah, yeah. i think they create a lot of poets or help yeah. a lot of poets <laughs> get along or something like that you might say yeah i i would agree they inspire um they just inspire um maybe have confidence you know comfort confidence and I think um, the one thing I always think of when I think of my grandmother is unconditional love. Yeah. And that always knowing that you have a, that source there is very reassuring and affirming. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. It supports and it uplifts. And it inspires. Yeah. And um 
And even after the, that person is physically gone, um, or even let's say, you know, mentally gone because of Alzheimer's, um, the presence of that energy of that love force uh, remained for me um, always as a kind of invaluable source of energy and strength. I would agree. Yeah. To that experience. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. I said, I really, I was really glad to be that we're talking and uh, that, uh, you know, your publisher found our podcast series so we could, uh, could connect and talk. And when I saw how many, how many ideas, I mean, things I feel like in common with you, it's just really nice. Thank so, you. Uh, well, we, we got time for another one. Okay. Um, probably a good idea. Like the so good sampling. Remember, this is from <laughs> Elegies, and that book is published by Flower Song Press, and it is just out. It is hot off the presses. Yes. Um, so I'll read this poem because we were talking about it. Elegy in which is hidden an ode to your beehive updo. What does a Caribbean woman free from the shackles of Trujillo and machismo dream upon stepping foot in New York City? In the photo, you are kneeling, one arm across your thigh and the other holding your purse, staring past the cameraman into a future you couldn't possibly know would include me, your oldest daughter's son, stuck on you. And I don't know the appeal of a beehive updo except that you look so beautiful, so confident, so like me when I'm wearing new sneakers and starting out in the evening. Mommy. If you only knew there's a pantsuit revolution happening now, but you were rocking pantsuits in the 60s with beehive updos and platform shoes. And as I burn a hole in this crinkly sepia photo, seeking details within details, I wish I could just pick up a phone and ask you to head over to Walmart with me. And we could laugh at the fake updos on sale. And I take advantage of the moment to say, no one rocked it like you a different kind of crown for a new freedom, for a new queen. All right. Okay, we're about out of time, but you do teach. So I thought I would ask you a question I like to ask people who teach is, when you're talking to your students, what's some really big thing that you really push with them about writing poetry? Something that's just really big with you that you want to be sure of. You really hope they get this point. That, um, their everyday life is poetry. That poetry is in the moments that um, you don't have to have traumatic experiences to write poetry. If you had a happy childhood, that doesn't preclude you from being a poet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, poetry is, is all in the moments. Um, and it's all based on you know, how, how you access your imagination, one. Um, but poetry is, is kind of like a way of seeing the wonder in the world. So that um, Rilke, I always give him the line from Rilke uh, and we watch um, wonderful actor, Dennis Hopper. We watch Dennis Hopper's uh, YouTube video where he's reading the letter from Rilke. You ask whether your verses are good. You ask me, you've asked others before, 
you send them to magazines, you compare them with other poems, and you are disturbed when certain editors reject your efforts. Now, since you've allowed me to advise you, I beg you to give up all that. You're looking outward, and that above all you should not do now. Nobody can counsel you and help you, nobody. There's only one single way. Go into yourself. Search for the reason that bids you to write. Find out whether it is spreading out its roots in the deepest places of your heart. Acknowledge to yourself whether you would have to die if it were denied you to write. This above all, ask yourself in the stillest moment of your night, must I write? Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if this should be affirmative, if you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple, I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Your life even... And he's like, you know, if you don't have to write, don't do it. But if you do, then know that your life is poetry. You know, your history is poetry. You know, the people you meet, the places you go, the conversations you have, it's all poetry, you know? There you go. You just got to get it down. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, man. And, uh, as another sort of, part, I, I hate to stop, as another parting comment, you know, I, I definitely envy you being able to speak Spanish. Because when I read those poets whose original language is Spanish, they come up with these images that I go, now what? That why my brain doesn't do that? Because I only speak English. Uh, you know, they do these surreal, beautiful, fantastic images. And I, it's just wonderful. And you're lucky to have it. <laughs> I have a, a, an appreciation also for visual art that um, I also like to draw and paint as well. And so, a lot of those poets, you know, Garcia Lorca, you know, Neruda, Alberti, um, you know, all of those cats were, they were either painters, you know, they dabbled, or their circle of artists included painters and people who saw things visually, photographers. And so, um, you know, aside from learning Spanish, <laughs> I think also um, that immersion uh, in visual arts is, uh, I think is a wonderful, is a wonderful avenue for poets to explore. Now I don't feel so bad because I've been yeah. a lot of art, I go to a lot of art museums and I yeah, feel see? a lot better yeah. in, in compensate. <laughs> okay, this has been really great. Folks, you're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter, and our guest has been Roberto Garcia from New York City. Thanks a lot, Roberto. It's been great. Thank you, Charlie. All righty. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember... Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. 
For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.